rows and bring it up here and let you look at it. How does that happen? How does the root of that plant know to dig down and have a little program that says, I need this and that and the other nutrient out of the soil, and that some protoplasmic kind of a lymphatic system defies gravity and flows upward from the root through the stem out to the branch and gradually forms a little bud that has that incredible color and then opens up. And when you look at it under a microscope, it is so velvety. It appears that there are little tiny microscopic hairs that cover the entire thing. And it's a fabulous creation. Man did not produce that. Where did it come from? How did it get here? Who made it? And how is it that when it goes to seed and you get the seed and plant it, that in that little tiny seed that you could take a razor blade and cut it in four or five segments and look at it very carefully under a microscope, you just see a funny looking little kind of a piece of something you might have picked up off the floor. It's unidentifiable to you. But in that tiny seed is a pattern. It's invisible to the human eye, or even by the most powerful of any kind of a microscope that science has. But you put it in the ground, and that little seed begins to decay. A little germ of life puts down a little root, and on the other end of it, a little sprout begins to come out, and it forms a rose. You've all in class when you were kids, perhaps in high school, in your various biology or other classes, planted a bean pod and watched that bean through the first few days of splitting open and the way it goes down and comes up. You can do it in a glass of water for something like perhaps a segment of a sweet potato and watch it put down roots and climb all over your kitchen counter. And here are these patterns in these growing things. I am a naturalist. That is, I'm curious about nature. I'm fascinated by fish and bees and dolphins and by these seals out there that woke Charlie up out of a sound sleep last night and the sea lions that I heard yesterday when I was privileged to play a round of golf with my brother and David Antion over here at Spyglass Hill and go right down next to the beach and walking along the fairways were beautiful little deer. Sometimes herds of eight or ten or twelve of them with three and four bucks right there within forty, fifty feet of us on the tee. And sometimes you were a little careful because you thought if I miss hit my ball I may hit one of those poor deer. It was like playing golf in the middle of a zoo. I've never had a, an opportunity like that except the last time I was at Spyglass Hill where all these deer are. When Johnny Carson has a guest who follows the monkeys, they always know they're going to be a complete wipeout. They come on and they say, oh no, I had to be the one to follow the animals. Because probably millions of people are like me. When you're watching television and you suddenly see a little spider monkey doing some kind of antics or some crazy looking weird baby little creature from Australia or some lady like Joan Embry from the San Diego Zoo is cuddling a koala bear, you have to stop and watch. I do. I love looking at little creatures like the other day we were treated to the sight of twin hippopotami. That's two hippopotamuses which were born I think in the Kansas City or the St. Louis Zoo. And here was their huge ponderous mother of 4,000 pounds or more and the two little babies that were so ugly and yet they were cute. Having been almost fascinated and really curious about nature all of my life, it was a great privilege for me in my years in Ambassador College to study into geology 
into historic and dynamic geology and to compare what can be known about chemistry and, of course, especially about mineralogy and where we get things like diamonds and emeralds and rubies and how they are formed and how they reflect or refract light and how when they are smashed or broken they break along certain lines that have to do with maybe a glassy, fractious kind of a structure like obsidian or orthoclase or plagioclase feldspar that when you smash a cube of it with a hammer and look at the dust that you have put between the anvil and the hammer under a microscope, it is still going to break at right angles. And what law there is there at work that makes certain minerals cleave in a certain way or that causes quartz to form in the way that it does in the ground in an area where certain minerals can leach out of the soil into a cavernous area or even in the middle of what is called a geode in a rock and form some of the most beautiful crystals you've ever seen. To me, God made all of this. Nothing is more fascinating than human reproduction. Nothing is a greater drama than seeing your firstborn come into the world. Nothing is a greater drama than sharing with a husband and a wife the process of birth, of actually being there to see your son born. Talk about an emotional high. Talk about walking on cloud nine. You never get higher than the moment when you see your own creation, a part of you and your wife, emerging into the bright light of day for the first time, a little squalling, bawling, struggling child with the cord still attached, and you say with your voice choking with emotion, honey, it's a boy, you know, there's nothing like it. Fathers know that. Mothers know that when that baby is first put on the breast of the mother. How does that happen? How does that come about? In Hebrews, the eighth chapter, verse four, I want to read just one verse. The Apostle Paul is writing about Christ and the priesthood after the rank of Melchizedek. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Fine. Let's do that. Let's do that, shall we? Let's consider how great this man was, to whom Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. In Genesis 1-1, we're introduced in the first book of the Bible, a book called The Beginning, to a statement about the beginning. It says in the book of Beginnings, in the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. That all by itself boggles the mind. What have you ever created? I'm a painter. I love to paint. I have paintings hanging around in my den, about five or six of them. I've given away a few dozen, probably most of which have been relegated to the garage. If I come to visit, they might end up in a bedroom wall, but you know what kind of an artist I really am. But it is at least limited creativity, and you're very, very happy when you see something. You put all these splotches together that seems to look like it might be a landscape and you feel creative. But I didn't create the pigments, I didn't create the canvas, I didn't create the paints or make the brushes. I merely used a lot of things with other people's ingenious inventiveness and put together a certain series of colors that make the eye think it is seeing something it really is not. I have never invented anything that I know of. I have no power to create except the limited procreative ability to have produced three sons who look an awful lot like me. It's amazing to me. I see a picture of Matthew 
at his age today and a picture of his dad when he was in his 30s, and I cannot believe how similarly we look. It's incredible. I can't believe how like my father in so many ways I really am. I have certain proclivities my mom uh, used to notice, and I think I take after my dad far more than my mother. And I've long since gotten over, you know, apologizing for that, because hopefully there are many, many things my father gave to me that are good. But the one greatest gift he gave to me is the gift that I'm exercising right now, and it has nothing to do with speaking. I'm standing here. That rose is dying. I'm still alive. My dad, with my mom, in the embrace of love in their marriage, gave me the gift of life. And I am made in the image of my father, Herbert W. Armstrong. And I've had a life which has been bad and good and indifferent and mediocre. I've sailed the high places of the earth looking out of the Fanjet Falcon's cockpit at 39,000 feet at the glaciers in Iceland. And I've been to some of the low places of the earth, down deep inside mines or in the valley that is the lowest declivity in the earth where the Dead Sea is, just a little bit east of Jerusalem, had some horrifying, terrible experiences and some very wonderful, moving experiences, the highs and the lows, the peaks and the valleys of human physical life. I understand what it is, then, to not only be a human being made in the image of my father, but to have reproduced and to see my own sons coming along, and now my son's son, and to enjoy a grandson to hold him on my lap, to have him say he loves Papa, or to say goodbye, Papa, and every time he says Papa, something happens in here. It turns over, and it just gets me in a, an extremely different way. It's a complete new experience that I've never had before. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens. Now, for the next four weeks, I could be here, we could all be together, we could preach sermons, and we could do our research, and we could have books on astronomy, we could get the Time Life series, we could get all the glorious pictures and the National Geographics of all of the fantastic lunar landings of the samplings of pictures from Mars and all of the space Voyager pictures that have been brought back in our gorgeous color that have even taken pictures of the moons of some of the planets, and it would just be mind-boggling. When I look at the sky at night, I basically do not take it for granted. When I'm out hunting in Colorado and I can actually see the moons of Venus with a naked eye, I run and grab my 10-power binoculars and get a good steady platform and just stare at them, mesmerized about the awesomeness of the solar system, of our little corner of the universe that is called the Milky Way. How did God do all of that? Who is this God we worship? Who is he? What does he look like? How big is he? What does his day consist of? What kind of a person is he? Well, we'll find out a little more. It said, the earth was without form and void. It was tohu and bohu in Hebrew. It's chaotic, vain, empty, and waste. What we ought to do, I think, is perhaps reminisce about an article I wrote many, many years ago, and we can do so in a very few brief moments, by saying that we're going to pretend we're in a spaceship we're going to take a trip way back in time to that distant time when the earth was chaotic and void and empty and vain and waste. 
because there are absolute proofs, you know, not only in the coral atolls and the growth of polyps around the ring of an ancient extinct volcano, which all atolls, including Ulithi, and some of them are over 120 miles across, so that the interior lagoon formed a fantastic anchorage for the entire United States fleet prior to the invasion of the Japanese home islands, at which time the atomic bomb was dropped. And you can see an aerial photograph of the fleet at Anchorage in Ulithi, where you can count 26 American aircraft carriers, more than a dozen battleships, dozens and dozens of cruisers and destroyers and submarines anchored almost as far as the eye can see in what was once the cone of an extinct volcano. And because of the measured rate at which the coral polyps are able to grow from a sunken volcanic cone, they can actually determine about how long that mountain has been beneath the sea. But all of that having to do with dynamic geology and the formation of the rocks beneath our feet, like the exposure of that gigantic cleft we call the Grand Canyon with those huge smooth depositions of sandstones and limestones that look as though they have been mixed so perfectly your mother did it in the blender when she was making hotcakes one morning. But some of them are a hundred feet thick and just as smoothly textured as they can be. What does it tell you? It tells you that a gigantic, turgid, waterborne tidal wave of some sort of mud flowed over that area because you do not suspend the action of the moon and its tug upon the surface of the earth even if the continents are inundated beneath the surface of the earth or gradually rising as they did not once but many many times who knows how many maybe hundreds the earth was submerged beneath the water not all at once perhaps but here and there and sometimes perhaps all of it the flood at Noah's time was not the first time this earth was overrun with water. How else can I kick a rock at 14,000 feet in Colorado and pick up graftolites and encephalopods and ammonites and look at little fossils that were once sea creatures along a sea coast of who knows how many billions of years ago? And I have them on my desk and have them at home where I picked them up and brought them from the highest rocky mountains that were once under the sea. In our spaceship, we're going to see a ruined Earth. Blackness prevails. It is nothing but Stygian outside. And we come down, and little by little, we see light beginning to penetrate. And it looks as if there is a mist, and there is a fog, and there are low clouds everywhere. As we see the waves, we notice tremendous whirlpools and activity beneath the waves. And suddenly, we begin to see rocks and mountains, and we see shoals appearing, and we see billions of cubic yards of tortured, muddy, green, roiled, and disturbed water cascading and flowing off those rocky areas or prominences as they emerge from the surface of the ocean. Years go by, millennia, generations pass, but to us it's just a moment in the twinkling of an eye until one day we come in our spaceship and we're hovering over a person who appears to be bent along a stream bank somewhere in a land that we now call Palestine. And we see a creature who looks as if it may be a man. He's not wearing clothing. He seems to be muscular, perfectly developed, bronzed, a beautiful male human form. And he is kneeling by a stream bed and picking out great hands full of red mud. And he is forming and molding and making a form. And as we look and we watch, the form appears to be a replica of the man that we're watching, creating, sculpting 
an image of himself. There comes a moment when he bends over this image, lying there, looking now like a full-fledged man, and what a glorious sculptor he is. Because the features are perfect. No sculptor had ever formed out of clay a figure that was any more an exact replica of its maker than this great sculptor. And he reached down and placed his mouth, just like a fire department resuscitation squad trying to revive someone who was about to die and breathed blue into that mouth, and pink hues began to form, and it looked as if some sort of ruddy complexion began to emerge from what had been red mud. And he picked up this creature and stood him on his feet, and he said, You are Ish. You are Adam. I like to imagine what that was like. I like to let my mind wander back to that time and to stun myself and to awe myself, to amaze myself, to challenge my imagination by what it must have been like to have been there at the time of creation. Years ago, at the Civic Auditorium in Pasadena, my wife and I and a bunch of us in the college and the church went over to hear Fred Waring. I've heard this a couple of times since then. I've forgotten the name of the gentleman. He was a black man with a very gifted voice who performed a very moving number that I had the great privilege to perform at one time and to do that part, and he was the one who inspired it with the Ambassador College Chorale called The Creation. And you hear this song or this kind of a series of violins and this orchestral arrangement from off stage, and the stage is completely blackened, and all of a sudden there's just a little pin spot that hits one corner of it, and he comes diving out onto the stage and skids out the center stage on his knees wearing a tuxedo. And you can see nothing but his black face and his white cuffs and his tie. And he says, as a hush falls over the auditorium with 1,500 people, And God stepped out into the universe. And chills go all over your body. Your hair stands up. And it just absolutely constricts your throat and you can't breathe. And he stands up and the orchestra raises and he said, And he looked around there was no one. And God said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a man. And again, goose pimples spread over my body. And my mind, because of the dramatization and the music, and this man's mellifluous voice makes me just thrilled to what he is trying to portray to me. And it was moving beyond my ability to describe, to hear Fred Waring in that gorgeous choral group that he put together with this fantastic man with his voice portraying in song and words what it must have been like at creation. Now, it wasn't because God said he was lonely, of course. It was much more than that, but that had to figure in it. God wanted more of him. What is this about a man makes him want a son? Now, only the men can perhaps rationalize with me on this a little. The women can certainly understand it from the standpoint of why a woman wants a daughter. But, you know, there's something of pride, perhaps even something of vanity, but there's also something of the desire to achieve a kind of immortality. Certainly, it's not just lonesomeness. But I know that when you finally have a firstborn son, something happens, some kind of a thrill, some sense of creation and of leaving behind a part of you which will go on 
in what is a true cycle, life, which has not ever begun or ended, only broken or interrupted by death, but is a cycle in the truest sense of the word that goes back in the footsteps of time so far as we can probe into the dim antiquity of man whose footprints lead away from the Middle East. And that process by which we all got here and came to be continues on down from generation to generation. So Almighty God wanted to recreate and had that same motive or feeling perhaps that he has bequeathed to all of us as potential fathers and grandparents to reproduce, to recreate, to have a son. Now we can look at all that we can come to know about God in the Old Testament. There are some very interesting places I want to go, but remember that he walked and talked with the patriarchs, to Seth, and of course to Noah. And he spoke to these people. He appeared to Abraham and even ate with him in the tent plain of Mamre when they killed the young bullock and prepared a meal right quickly when he was walking with some angels who went on to rescue Lot from the city of Sodom. We can remember how he wrestled all night with Jacob. Well, let's go to the third chapter of the book of Exodus right quickly. We'll just select a few places here and there that are really very, very interesting that will help us understand a little more about that scripture in Hebrews 8.4. Consider how great this man really was. Moses was arguing about the call that he was receiving from an angel who appeared to him in a flame, verse 2, out of the midst of a bush. And Moses said unto God, and the spokesman of God really, but addressing God, Who am I? I love that statement. David made that statement. Jeremiah made that statement. Isaiah made that statement. Woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah, who am I? I'm too young. David, who am I that I should be selected to serve God? It's always good to bear that in mind instead of saying, Oh, me? Well, of course, it's about time. I'm logically the one you should have called. I see these marvelous examples of God in the past, of men of God who were humble and were dumbfounded that they, of all human creatures, could be co chosen to serve God. Who am I that I should go into Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this will be a token that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you will serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said to God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, they'll say, What's his name? They will doubt. What will I tell them then? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. I remember the Ten Commandments and the bass voice and the giving of the law, and the scene of Moses at the bush, and the voice from out here in space saying, I am that I am. And the goosebumps came over and the hair stood up and I thrilled up and down my spinal column. That's right. And it means I am the ever-living one. I am life. I am the one who always was and shall always be. I exist. We only live in a moment of space and time. We're fragile, like 103 in the bomb, a sudden accident, a careening car, a heart attack, whatever. We're so fragile, as fragile as that rose. But not God. He is more permanent than the universe, bigger than the sun. I am that I am. And he said, you shall say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, You shall say to the children of Israel, The eternal God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial 
unto all generations. If you'll turn to Exodus, the 24th chapter, you've got to get back into the picture just by turning quickly. You can remember that at the 20th chapter, the giving of the law came, the 17th and 18th, the trial of the people on the Sabbath and the killing of some of them for breaking the Sabbath law and God saying, how long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? But in the 24th chapter, Moses and the children of Israel, the elders, were writing a part of the judgments that became a part of the book of the law. Moses wrote all the words of the eternal, verse 4, rose up early in the morning and built an altar, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel, and sent the young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings, and he took half of the blood and sprinkled it on the altar, and then he took the book of the covenant, verse 7, and actually read it, and the people all agreed unanimously and said, we will do all that God commands us. We will be obedient. So he took the blood and sprinkled the people, sprinkled the book, and it was a sacrifice that showed that there was the need for the shedding of life's blood to atone for sin. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seventy of the leaders, the old white-bearded patriarchs, the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel... And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, just like in Ezekiel, the first chapter, and like in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, the brazen fire or tongs that are taken to get the coal to touch him symbolically on his lips, or the tenth chapter of Ezekiel, when this great, as it is, heavenly chariot, that's actually a translucent sea of glass, like a huge public area before a throne, and here it is depicted as if it were blazing, as it does with colors of fire that you would find in precious stones of every hue, as you see in the first chapter of Ezekiel. As it were a paved work, this great sea of glass that is depicted in the 15th chapter of Revelation, upon which the saints will stand at the reception of their salvation, their eternal life, at the second coming of Christ. A paved work as of a sapphire stone, as it were the very heaven in its clearness, as it says in the margin. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. They didn't see the Father, because Jesus said in the third chapter, in the fifth chapter of John, you have neither seen his shape nor heard his voice at any time. He had come to reveal the Father, but this person they saw was God, Christ. The one who became Jesus Christ they saw seated upon his throne as if covered with light and hues and gorgeous, beautiful colors of every kind. And it was a shocking and an awesome and a humbling experience for them to see God. Notice the curiosity of Moses in the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus. Moses had seen all of that with them, but it was indistinct because he saw the glory he saw the figure of someone on a throne. He saw that translucent sea that appeared to be a beautiful, precious stone. But he wanted to see more. And so after the breaking of the Ten Commandments, and after rewriting them in his prayer, actually hadn't yet written them here at this point because the 34th chapter is where we're going to find that occurring. But God had said there are stiff-necked people in verse 3 and verse 5. You're the children of, of Israel. You're a stiff-necked people. I'll come up and consume you. Then we know how Moses prayed and said, wipe my name out of your book of life, but please, for your own namesake, so the heathen will not say, didn't I tell you so, their God is not able to deliver them. And Moses reasoned with God. He appealed to God. He prayed. It said God repented himself. He changed his mind, and he decided, and he had not said so lightly, I will not then 
destroy every Israelite and raise up a new nation through Moses, I'll change my mind and I'll give them another chance. And it said, beginning in verse 9, it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended. And they could see this enfolding cloud slowly swirling around, actually come down from the heavens and hover over the top of the tabernacle. It stood at the door of the tabernacle in the eternal talk with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillars stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped. They got out, and they bowed down there in the awning underneath their tent, right out of the door to their tent, toward that tabernacle, and put their face to the ground. And the Eternal spoke unto Moses out of that cloud, remember, indistinctly, but the expression is face to face, like we stand and talk to one another in conversation. As a man speaks unto his friend. Fantastic. What an experience. The Eternal spoke unto Moses face to face as a man speaks unto his friend. And he turned again unto the camp, but the servant Joshua, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Moses said to the Eternal, See, you say unto me, Bring up this people, and you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know thee by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I found grace in thy sight, show me the way of you, the old English expression. Show me what you're like. Can't I know more about you, God, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. He could hear the voice, but he saw only indistinctly in a cloud and knew that there was someone there, knew it was God. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said unto him, If your presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Oh, how badly do I need your presence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that you go with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Eternal said to Moses, I'll do this thing that you've spoken. Because he knew Moses was wavering. He needed the bolstering and the reassurance. And he said, Because you found grace in my sight, and I know you, Moses, by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me your glory. Show me how beautiful and wonderful and powerful you really are. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Eternal before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live, because man in his human, imperfect, sinful state would simply die in the face of Almighty God. And the Eternal said, There's a place by me, and you'll stand upon this rock, and it'll come to pass while my glory passes by, I'll put you in this crevice, this cliff to this rock over here, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand after he had gone by and had turned away from Moses, and you shall see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. And Moses stood there, and the cloud came and enveloped him, and he felt a presence going by, and he looked, and the cloud seemed to part, and he saw, as it were, a perfectly formed man wearing no clothes, departing to be swallowed up in the mist. 
midst and, and knew that it was a man, a human form that he was seeing. And the Eternal then told him to hew two more tablets. And after that bolstering of Moses' faith and letting him have that experience, talking, as it were, face to face with God out of a cloud, he wrote the Ten Commandments, the two tablets which survived and which indeed, I believe, do survive somewhere to this day. Somewhere the Ark of the Covenant reposes, buried, hidden from human eyes as surely as the Ark in which Noah rode, buried, obscured from human eyes, still exists. So somewhere those tablets, the second set, that were inside the Ark of the Covenant and gave the Ten Commandments to mankind still exist. On down through the Old Testament we see of all of the appearances to the prophets, like the one I've already mentioned to Ezekiel, and the one that I mentioned to Isaiah, and many other cases where they either through dreams or the envisioning of a great gigantic archangel standing as it were with his feet in the sea or his feet on the land. And as Daniel saw the great archangel and became so astonished that he fainted and was lying with his face to the soil until he was touched and put on his feet and he said, O man of God greatly beloved, then Daniel was told that God knew him by name and said, You're greatly beloved of God, Daniel. What a wonderful experience to have been able to have gone through something like that and have an archangel tell you, Daniel, God loves you. That does something to you when you realize if your name could be substituted there, what that would mean. To turn to the Philippians, the book of Philippians for a moment in the second chapter, we'll learn a little more of what it says about the process by which this great being who created the universe and put that sun up there that shines upon us today became, like we are, a human being in human flesh, a man. Verse 5 of the second chapter of Philippians, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, the form that we have been familiar with, we've seen back through all of history, the form that he had when he made and fashioned Adam by a creek bank in Palestine nearly 6,000 years ago, who being in the form of God, counted not equality with God a thing to be grasped at or clung to, as the original should say, as it has in the margin, the diaglot, and other versions will explain to you, but emptied himself, as it really says in verse 7, made himself of no reputation, has the connotation of divesting himself of that glory and that power, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the stauro, or the stake. The Latin word crux is not indicated by the Greek, which means an upright pale, and the word cross is a later insertion from English out of the Latin, but the Latin and the Greek have no relationship to each other any more than watch does to roads. Stauro is a stake and cross is a crux, and they have no relationship, as I think all of you know. So he said, Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In Hebrews, the fifth chapter, I won't turn to that, but we can read of how he was a human being and not only took upon himself the seed of Abraham but struggled and prayed and cried 
And because he suffered and actually overcame, because every day was a brand new struggle, and every hour was a new temptation, and every year was another crisis, and he had crises come to him the like of which none of us have ever experienced. You have never had Satan the devil take you by the hand and whisk you through the air to plant you on the top of Mount Hermon and show you all the kingdoms of the earth spread out from the vast distance of the plain of Lebanon to the northern part of Israel with the Sea of Galilee like a little jewel in the distance and say, Behold, all the kingdoms of men, I will give you all of this if you will but bow down and worship me or take you to the pinnacle of the temple, appear to you at a time when you're near death from fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and contrive to put into your mind the idea that one of those round stones could be turned into a brown loaf of fresh, steaming bread. And more than that, the daily temptations, the nightly temptations, the weekly temptations of appetite, of lust, of the desire to see or behold things that were forbidden with the eye, of desires to taste and to, to have things touch the tongue that are forbidden to the mouth, of having the hand reach and touch or fondle or caress or seize and take things that the hand should not touch that are forbidden. The daily overcoming of sin. Consider how great this man was. We've considered how great he was from back in the beginning, that he is creator, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who talked to Moses face to face as a man. But now let's consider, as I told you about the rose, the fact that a little seed, so tiny, and most of the time because roses like certain trees and vines and plants, you can take a little clipping of it, you well know, in this country, of a grapevine, and every little joint that the grapevine is capable of putting out either a leaf or a root, depending upon whether it's touching the soil or just hanging there in the air. So you can take a few joints of it and stick most of them in the ground and it'll put out roots and become another plant. And that's the way they usually transplant roses. They work with the roots, but they can also be planted by that seed that the little flower produces. So, I can't get into this technically or clinically because I don't know how. But yet I must understand, because of the process by which I came to be, that at one time in the dim past, nearly 2,000 years ago, a young woman received a very shocking message. Let's go to the second chapter, first chapter, first of all, of the book of Luke, and read what occurred at that time. A shocking message. A young woman who was married to an older man who might have been anywhere from 30 to 40 years her senior. And in the occasion of this appearance to Mary by a great archangel, she was given an astounding message. In verse 26 of the first chapter of Luke, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We were talking a little bit this morning, for those of you who were not here for the ministerial meeting, about the fact that oftentimes many of our people, uh, people who have been in the church or the parent church for many, many years, tend to be a little bit threatened by uh, the idea of Christmas, and that primarily our ministry hardly ever finds an opportunity to preach and to expound and explain and to go through the wonderful passages that have to do with the birth of Jesus Christ and what a great event that was and all that took place in heaven and on earth. And because, like rope repeating constantly at Christmas time and in the hymns and carols of Christmas and in all the plays and all the displays on people's front yards of the mangers and the camels and the wise men and shepherds and the little babe in a manger, we tend to avoid that part of the Bible. But it should not be avoided. It certainly should be read as your 
daily reading through the Scriptures, and you should read it at least once or twice in your life all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. You should read and study all different parts of the Bible at different times. In the sixth month, Gabriel was sent to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in under her and said, Hail, that's just like saying hello there, or howdy. In the vernacular, the Hebrew tongue, he would have greeted her and said, Hello, you that are highly favored. Now, instead of thinking about the rosary hour, of how they endlessly repeat this as they say the rosary or put it on the radio and just run the tape, let's understand what he was saying. The Lord is with thee. Most of the main original manuscripts omit the remainder of that passage. It is not there in most of the original manuscripts when it says, Blessed art thou among women. Although, even though it might be a, a later interpolation or something of that nature, maybe it could be there. It's not a, a great thing one way or the other because it doesn't do violence to the sense of the verse. But apparently most best of the best manuscripts do not have that. When she saw him, she was puzzled, troubled, astounded, no doubt, and cast in her mind what kind of a greeting this should be. What did it mean? And the angel said, Fear not, don't be astounded or puzzled, Mary, because you have found favor with God. Again, we have a human being receiving a message from a divine source through a great archangel, as Daniel was told, Daniel, from the time you began to chastise yourself and fast and pray, your prayers have been heard, for you're a man greatly beloved. And what a reassuring thing that must be for a human being to be working and laboring and trying as best he possibly can with his human foibles, failings, and faults to stay close to God and to do God's work and service and to be a man at the right hand of them, the greatest empire in all of the world, to be right there with others who had been rescued from the captivity and to have been given favor in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and three of his successors and to actually outlive up to five Babylonian kings and to be told then in that lengthy prophecy of Daniel 11 what all of future history was to eventually unfold all the way down to the time of the end and the second coming of Jesus Christ and to be given the gift of not only telling Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of a dream, but to have God plant in his mind exactly what the man dreamed. And then to be told by an angel, you're a man, greatly beloved. God loves you, Daniel. You're a special man in his sight. That absolutely gives me a thrill when I think of that ever being said of me or of you, of someone you or I love or know, of being told from an angelic messenger, God knows you, and he loves you. You're ready to go, then. That would be it. That would be the end of all things. You wouldn't need to be alive another minute, because you would know you're written in that book up there. ...to find out that's right. That's where conception takes place. Because once in a while, they have these other things that happen where there is a fallopian conception, but primarily it is in the womb where it takes place. Sure enough, you shall conceive in your womb. So I pause and I think about the rose. I think about the seed, whether it's a radish seed or a grain of corn or a bean pod. And I think of the seed that was implanted that brought me into being and all of you, that gave me my eyes with the cones and rods and the coloring, that gave me my height and general weight and texture of skin and color of hair and eyes and all of that that came from my father and my mother. And so I think... How dumbfounding, how, how shocking, how amazing 
that Almighty God in the macrocosm of the mighty limitless universe could come down into the little tiny microcosm of infinitesimal microscopic life and empty himself of all of the power of the universe and become a male seed to fertilize a human female egg and to begin in that lowly place as an embryonic beginning to develop into a fetus to come full term to nine months and to be born from a virgin and to be a human baby lying there in some swaddling clothes in a manger, to be born in a stable. We miss the beauty of that story because we so reject Christmas. But you can take all the paganism and all the things that associate themselves with Christmas from all the history of the world and set those aside and then realize that in their own way, these millions of people who do really think about Christ and not only the commercial aspects of buying, and after all there is a desire to give, isn't there, in the hearts of many people. They think in their own minds, I, I envision how mom is going to react when she opens this package and sees her new robe, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the motives of people at that time of the year are probably some of the best motives of any time of the year in the entire so-called Christian world. To me, the bitter cynicism of the Arabs who blew that airplane out of the sky only days before Christmas was exactly like the Arabs who attacked the Jews on Yom Kippur or the Japanese who bombed Pearl Harbor on a Sunday. It was a calculated, premeditated, cynical thing to usher in a shocking, horrifying loss of life that would just bereave millions of people and cause tens of thousands of families to just shed buckets of tears. What about those kids in Syracuse? All the families of this whole returning group of youngsters coming back from an exchange program overseas. It was a cynical thing to do at that time that is called Christmas. Somehow, we as a ministry and we as a church need to capture and to rekindle in our own hearts, in the hearts and minds of our people, a love for this story, for the birth of our Savior, for what he was like when he was a baby, what he was like when he was a little boy, the story of him teaching to those doctors in the temple at age 12, and all that we can derive from that by reading what kind of a dependable little boy he must have been. How they went for a day or two before they knew he was missing because he was utterly dependable. He'll, he'll be there somewhere. His obedience, his position in the family, and how they depended upon him. All the things we can learn. And you know, you hear about a child prodigy. I've heard of cases where children have picked up a violin and played it like a concert artist the first time they ever got a hold of one. I hear about kids who are mathematical geniuses who can actually go through a college course before they're really out of the fifth or sixth grade. It's happened. Their children are so gifted and so brilliant that they can go through collegiate curricula when you and I were struggling in the fifth, sixth grade. It's happened, and it'll happen again. Jesus was like that. There are absolute proofs. You go through some of the appendices of Bullinger, of the quotes that he used from the Old Testament, the many statements he made before Abraham was, I am. What he said to his mother, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Talking about his father's house in the temple. And you realize then that in those early dawning moments of his mind's development, 
that there came another sense, a flowing of knowledge and information from a powerful spiritual source. And that we don't really think, I want to take 20 minutes to give the analogy of computers and how they compartmentalize and document in certain files all this information and to tell you a little bit about your brain. Mr. Dart gave a marvelous sermon on that some year or two ago when he talked about every experience you've ever had, everything you've ever learned is still in there. It really is. It just takes certain triggers to unlock it. You don't realize that. I can go along and be doing something and all of a sudden some thought pops into my head about something I was doing or something I knew or said or thought or from seven or eight years ago in some faraway place and I thought, what put it there? Well, I know it had to be some series of events that triggered a little spark of electrical energy that interrogated a part of my brain that I thought was dead and was lying there unused and it popped a thought to the surface that is in that memory bank that I never use. Most of us never achieve, in school or otherwise, a level of concentration to where we're really using very much of our mind. The mind is one of the greatest instruments that we have, and of course the greatest, but it's one that probably is the least used oftentimes. We're capable. Well, Jesus Christ, perfect, flawless mind, perfect, flawless physically, and with God's Spirit poured out in that mind, attached and together with his human mind, without limit, had to give him that sixth sense, we call it, of an understanding of his previous life, and we can see his relationships. And later on, we can see his statements and his analogies and his parables and his statements to his disciples when he is talking about Satan. And he tells them, and he must have been stunned by what he said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I was there when the great war in heaven occurred. I saw him like a meteor, like a jet shot out of the sky, plummeting with a shower of sparks and his trailing angels to the earth. I was there. Some of these so-called Negro spirituals, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Uh, they, they portray a desire to appreciate all of those experiences previous to the birth of Christ, during the birth and the babyhood of Christ, and during the time of his passion, as it's called, and his death on the stake. I think oftentimes we in God's church miss the richness of the tapestry of what this precious holy book is telling us about a man that you should do more than just use his name as spiritual salt and pepper at the end of a sermon or at saying grace over a meal, but now and then in your life, your relationship with Jesus Christ should move you to tearful speechlessness. And you should stand like David in awe before God as we sung in the song, he's seeking after God's altars and how he can't stand it because he needs to rush to grab the horns of the altar. Oh, to be in thy tabernacles, O Lord. It sounds so strange to us. The Psalms of David, exultant, praising, songs that exalt and worship and honor and express really the inability of a human heart and a human mind to grasp how great is this Christ. And so the angel goes on to say, You shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And that really does mean God with us. The J-E is the God, and in, in that sense you can look at the, all the original names and titles. There's a whole good article on that in the Bullinger's Companion Bible. Emmanuel. 
God in the human flesh. God dwelling in a human frame, living here on this earth. He shall be great, and is he ever, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, that's on this earth, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will never be an end. There are so many other scriptures that we could look to, but I want to turn back to that book of Philippians and show you what the Apostle Paul was saying. If there was a man who knew Jesus Christ, it was Paul. He was with him in a very obscure and mostly forgotten passage of scripture that he himself acknowledged in the book of Galatians for perhaps three and one-half years in the Saudi Arabian desert. He had an opportunity that was unique among all the apostles because while they saw Jesus Christ on many occasions during the forty-some days after his resurrection and ascension to heaven and coming back down and appearing to up to five hundred people in one place at one time, said Paul, Paul had the opportunity to see him repeatedly on practically a daily basis and to be taught of him for perhaps three and one-half years after the ascension, as he said, one begotten out of due season. He knew Christ. This salutary introduction of the people of the little town, little city called Philippi is really fascinating. First he talked about some preaching Christ of contention, verse 16, and verse 17, the other of love. And he said in verse 18 of the first chapter of Philippians, and we had already gone to the second chapter of Philippians and saw where it said he counted not equality with God a thing to be grasped at. So we're now reading up to this and how... Paul developed the theme of his calling, of his apostleship, of the position and the place of these people in the local church, and their relationship to Jesus Christ as their Savior, what this life is all about, the trials and troubles Paul was experiencing, and at this time he had just been locked up again, and he knew the time of his departure was going to come, and he was a, he was a, a jailbird, so to speak, in Rome, under bonds, and was writing through a scribe who were to convey these letters to some of the churches in that part of the world. What then? Notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, verse 18, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that prayer is direct communication, that it's the flowing of a powerful message that it gets things done. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, there won't be anything at all that will impede me from fulfilling my destiny. I will be a witness for my Lord with my dying breath. There will be no stuttering, no stammering, no holding back, no digressions or diversions. There will only be a testimony from the depth of my heart and I will not be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. Let me tell you something about the charismatics. Within a certain balance, they have something I wish we had more of. Within a certain balance, they have something I never want to touch. There becomes a feeling when you know you are saved which can be very close to pride. That's why it must be graced with humility. Because when you feel you know your Lord, you may adopt the tone that was 
I think, on a button I saw being worn by someone in this hotel. I will never be silent again. Or like a lady once told me years ago, why, if I should hold my peace and I weren't sitting here in church and every time you say something I say, Amen, the very rocks would cry out. But I cannot see that that is religion. And I cannot see that that is what God wants. So in a subtle way, very quickly, in the charismatic movement, there can become a kind of a pride. It can take a twist that can become vanity, spiritual vanity. And you can say, I am saved. Oh, praise the Lord and praise you, Jesus. And you look out at the world with this ebullience. You're vivacious. You're buoyed up. You know, I'm going into heaven. That's where they think they're going. It's a fait accompli. I'm practically there. So you bounce along through life looking at these lesser people who do not know your Lord. And you flaunt your religion with your clothing and your hats and your styles. And sometimes it can become, in a little twist of our human natures, vanity, instead of the humility that the Apostle Paul continually displayed. Yet short of that vanity, that knowing, that absolute knowledge, that assurance that is faith, that you have been saved, that you have received salvation, that the issue is no longer in doubt, that only you can change the ultimate outcome. God will not, Satan cannot, only you can. Somehow that was denied tens of thousands of my brethren and sisters and yours through decades of church going, and the emotional experience was almost always impugned and ridiculed. It had to become a thing of the intellect alone, almost. Not that anyone ever preached that, because no one in his right mind would ever get up and say that, but the effect of it all was an absence of the kind of outpouring of love that really is worship, because you know the word worship comes from the word adore. They're very, very close kin. And it does mean to love to the point of total adulation. And to worship is not just with the hands, because it says God needeth not anything. He dwelleth not in temples made with hands, and he needeth not anything that he is worshipped with man's hands. It has nothing to do with liturgy or formal ceremony or with altars and statuary or with any of those things. But if in the course of my year... I find that I am more greatly moved by happening to catch Pavarotti on Channel 13 public television and hearing a fabulous Italian aura, and I find tears in my eyes thrilling to that incredible tenor voice. But through the course of my year, in the Feast of Tabernacles, going to church with God's brethren, preaching sermons, hearing other people preach sermons to me, Mr. Dart and others in Tyler, if I do not thrill if I am not deeply moved to the bottom of my souls by the consciousness that Christ knows my name and that Jesus Christ says, Ted's my friend, that I've missed something, something very rich, something very deep in my life, and I'm just an empty shell going through a practice called religion, but the depth of enjoyment is not there. In the way many of us, I think, in our relationships to our friends, our relationships in our marriages, our relationships to our children, find it difficult to express ourselves. We find ourselves tongue-tied. We've seen motion pictures. We've read books about people who have been married for 50 years and never look at one another and 
simply say, do you have any idea how much I love you? And it's always too late, and the guilt trip, and the flowers, and the huge, expensive, rosewood, book-matched little coffins that they lay people away in are all an exercise in guilt. It's too late now, and I cannot tell this person what I felt, like the man that I remember years ago at, a, at an old fishing camp over in Louisiana who got back in bed after getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and he and his wife weren't getting along, and he buds over, and he said, get over, and she was cold, and he found out that she had died of a heart attack in her sleep. And the thing that he went through with realizing he had lain there beside his wife and got back in, tried to shove her away from him, and she was dead. And the guilt of knowing what he should have said when she was alive and never got around to. It's the same in our religion, if I may. Oftentimes, you never get around to telling God how much you love Him and how great He is. When I look at a rose, look at it closely, smell its odor, I'm thinking, how great is God? When I look at that sunset, at the vast Pacific Ocean, if I look at the fish, and I'd love to go to this aquarium, I understand it's a really beautiful experience, I want to try to do it if I can before we get away from here, and see the creatures that He has made, I think, Look at the beauty, look at the harmony, look at the symmetry. If I look at gorgeous, semi-precious or precious stones, and I look at things that God has created, it just is an exalting feeling to understand how great is our eternal Creator God. The Apostle Paul told these people that he would rather be with Jesus Christ. He said, I know this, that this will turn to my salvation through your prayer, verse 19, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing will I be ashamed, and with all boldness, and we read that, that he would speak so that Christ would be magnified in my body, whether it be through by my life and what he was accomplishing, or in his death, and at the moment of his last testimony. For to me to live is Christ, all embodied in who was Christ, why did he come, who was he before his human birth? The life that he lived, the admiration of the kind of a life that resisted sin at every turn, wherever it reared its head, that said no to every appetite was wrong and was sinful in God's sight, and that living in that human flesh with every tug and pull of that human flesh that we experience, and to live flawlessly and perfectly, so much is meant when he says, for me to live is Christ. It's more than just an emotion. It's the whole broad picture of who and what human beings are and who and what is God and the plan of salvation and Christ's birth as a child, his death as a man, his resurrection as God Almighty to ascend to the right hand of the Father on high. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What a concept. The death is not lost but the exact opposite. To die is gain. To die is success. To die is victory. To die makes me full. What a concept. What a developed faith. A human being to say under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I really don't know. I'm in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ. And in a split second of your consciousness, that's exactly what happens because it's in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, which is far better. Nevertheless, it is to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Even in that, it was an outgoing concern toward the brethren, his desire to 
serve them that made him go in that direction with his emotion toward death and staying alive and having this confidence and remember the death was facing him because he was on trial for his life I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and your joy of faith and that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again he hoped to be able to have a reunion with them only behave as citizens or let your conduct be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else I'm away, I may, may hear about you, and that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which to them is an evident token of perdition. That is, if they are your adversaries, they hate you because of your attitude of love and meekness and service and humility an absolute token of proof of the fact that they are condemned is the fact that they would hate someone who is sweet who is nice who is decent who's a nice guy a nice lady a good person evil cannot stand in the face of that it doesn't like sweet nice guys good people they write books nice guys good guys finish last that's what it is in this world but that is a token of their destruction, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. If there be, following right on man divided it into chapters, any consolation in Christ, and is there ever, if any comfort of love, and is there ever, if any fellowship of the Spirit, an expression he uses, if any bowels, that actually means a depth of emotion that causes you practically to bend over in pain. It is so deep and felt throughout the entire body that the viscera responds. And mercies, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, because it's the opposite of Christ's example. Strife and vainglory, that's of the devil. It's not of God, not of Christ. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but be concerned about other people's problems, and other people's difficulties, and other people's needs. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and we come full circle to read, who being in the form of God, we read before, thought it not something to be grasped, but emptied himself of heaven, came to the earth, born of a Virgin Mary, and became my Savior and yours. Can you say with me, I love Jesus Christ?